Plants capture CO2. What if we could help industrial plants capture it too? Think how we could help lower emissions. It's one way ExxonMobil is helping industrial plants be more like plants. Welcome to NFL Live. Jack Collinsworth, Adam Schefter, Josina Anderson, the Hall of Famer, Bill Polian. We'll do what we do. We'll start with Odell Beckham Jr. His agent has reportedly left town after Beckham and the Giants cannot come to an agreement on his true market value. Here's what Odell had to say about the ongoing contract negotiations. After I see my ankle snap and, and it feels like your world turns upside down, um, you know, life's just different. Uh, it, I'm just happy, honestly, for real, I'm just happy to be back out there running around. And like I said before, I don't believe in any of that any of that stuff. I feel like they'll get it done when they get it done. Let my agent and them figure it out. I just come out here, try and get all the plays down, focus on being the best that I could be. So it'll happen when it happens. Are you optimistic? Optimistic? Yeah, I'm optimistic. I'm confident it all, it all work itself out. Life always does. Who doesn't want to get more money you know everybody does so um realistically you, you know you just got to be realistic with yourself you see you see what happened over the off season um i can't really worry about anybody else uh, just let them figure it out and whenever it happens it'll happen all right so i don't know about the optimism and the optimistic answer but there you go that's what he had to say so we'll get straight to Josina, who's been all over this one where do the giants then have odell's value pegged as of right now well, my understanding is that the uh, total average per year on the deal right now is below Sammy Watkins. You know, Sammy Watkins got a deal, albeit a free agent deal, at a three-year, $48 million, uh, total value, which averages at 16. And even if you're talking about the new money, the idea is still not to just clear the hurdle on certain key contract metrics, but to actually, you know, reset the wide receiver market. And o- o- Odell's uh, feeling, and, and, and many of such, believe that he is a transcendent player that should do uh, just that with the contract, particularly when you're looking at the deals from the other wide receivers in his draft class that are averaging at about 15 or 16. And if you believe that he is beyond what Jarvis Landry is producing in the first three years of uh, their career, obviously because Odell only played four games last year, if you believe that he's done more than Sammy Watkins, who had 500-plus receiving yards last year and just eight touchdowns, uh, then perhaps the deal should be commensurate with that as well. It'll come down to, I think, the structure and the guaranteed money. Had to figure out that way because if the guarantees are there, the average is secondary to the guarantees in this deal. I think both sides are motivated to get this done. With Odell coming off the injury he had last year, he can't want to go into another season and risk any other injury before getting paid the way that every other receiver, top receiver from his draft class already has. That is a key point. And obviously, every time that he's out there without his signature on the deal, he's incurring that risk, particularly since the option year value right now is at $8.5 million. Bill, how do, you, how do you view the Sammy Watkins news, whatever you want to call it, that came out today? It was bad news for the Giants because Sammy Watkins is not deserving of that contract. Uh, he hasn't performed at that level. And so um, the Giants, you know, have to deal with that, unfortunately for them. Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, as both JoJo and, and, and Adam said, there are two parts, basically, to a contract negotiation. The first is guaranteed money. Injury and, and injury risk plays some role in that, although there are ways to mitigate that. 
And then the second is average per year, which is much more uh, of a cosmetic thing, but it's important to the player because it tells the world this is how the team values and the, the player. And the agent. Yeah, I, I, I never worried about agents, to tell you the <laughs> truth. The, the, uh, the, the, the bottom line is that um, uh, those two issues uh, are going to take a while because of the Watkins contract. And uh, I think in the end, it'll work itself out. So, Bill, Watkins is over 16. Yeah. Evans is over 16. Landry's over 16. If you're sitting here as the neutral arbitrator in this particular deal, what is a fair deal for Odell Beckham Jr.? Well, first of all, I'm not the neutral arbitrator. And, and, and so I, I, I can only tell you what history uh, tells me. And that is that he will leapfrog all of those contracts. The question is how much and under what circumstances. So generally speaking, if the agent gets his APY, which is the, is the, the, the acronym for mm-hmm. average per year, and the player gets the guarantees that he thinks are important, guarantees are really important to the player, uh, then the club gets the structure that it wants. That's generally the trade-off. What's interesting here is that you're reporting, Josina, that the average offer is less than Sammy Watkins, correct? On the total average per On year. On the total average. Mm-hmm. So if the total average per year is lower than Sammy Watkins' 16-plus number, and the Giants don't want to come up at that point, what does Odell Beckham Jr. do? Does he roll the dice and go into the season? Does he take an offer that is less than Sammy Watkins, which you don't believe Sammy Watkins is worth that deal, Bill? So what happens then if we're at that point? Well, first of all, if Odell holds out, he incurs some, some pretty big fines to begin with. And I'm not talking about holding I'm just talking about how does he proceed? Does he... Oh, well, you proceed, you continue to negotiate. Generally speaking, everything that you said was correct, and you're, you're one of the best. But when, generally speaking, when agents or clubs are talking about a negotiation, they're not close. When they're close, they stop talking. That's the bottom line. And I think, so and I think, they're not close. That's what you can infer from it. Absolutely, Bill. And I think the other thing that's interesting here is that the wide receiver market really hasn't moved that much since Larry Fitzgerald and Calvin Johnson did their deals. Now, I understand that was before the rookie wage scale, but even if you're looking at what A.J. Green uh, was making in 2015, averaging 15, and you include the increase in cap that has happened since then with inflation built into that, that's at 18.5. So and even if you're looking at what – uh, Antonio Brown did with his deal last year, redoing it so it's at 17 that has you over 18. So, you know, talks that I've heard about is why would Odell even start at less than that? And the discussion just being around that as far as his deal should reflect the fact that he is a transcendent player and should reset the market or at least boost it much in the way that Todd Gurley has done for the running back markets and Jarvis Landry has done for slot receivers, averaging what at 15 when slot receivers weren't even getting at 12 before that. Yeah. See, transcendent and reset are words that as a GM I would uh, <laughs> take it out of the dictionary Bill <laughs> that's exactly right I would if not out of the dictionary Get off the table <laughs> yeah that's maybe out of the start. thesaurus that's exactly right and in- injuries for the record have been an obvious concern 47 out of a possible 64 games is all that OBJ has played in uh, so that's where those stand. We'll, we'll get you more on the nego- negotiations as they come. Let's get to more wide receiver news right now. The Cleveland Browns have traded their 2016 first-round pick, Corey Coleman, to the Buffalo Bills in return for a 2020 seventh-round pick. Health has been on the table as well for Coleman as he missed six games in his rookie year and seven last season. Adam is all over this story. We'll get it to him here soon. Here's what GM Brandon Bean said on the deal. 
I remember scouting him in college. Uh, we, we actually did a private with him, and uh, so I got to know him a little bit and, you know, his makeup and all that. You can't coach speed, and uh, we're, we're always looking to add it. So that was one of the attractive things of him coming out, and he still got that. We're trying to get better at every position. That's, that's the reality. And maybe sometimes you're looking harder at certain positions uh, where, where the competition's unsettled. We view it as a fresh start here to earn and compete, and there's nothing guaranteed here. He's got to come in and earn it. Uh, whether it's a starting job or just a job on the 53. Well, the Browns drafting continues to be a house of whores. They made eight first-round picks from 2012 to 2016, and with the trade of Coleman, none of those players are still on the team. And the Browns are the only team in the NFL without an original first-round pick prior to 2017 on their current roster. Adam, with this trade in particular, what more can you tell us? Well, listen, the Browns were looking to deal Corey Coleman all through the spring, and there was no question that at some point this summer they were going to trade him. I think it was exacerbated by the fact some of the conversations he had with some of the coaches didn't necessarily go the way that the Browns would have liked. I think that moved up their timeline. They moved him maybe a little bit sooner than they wanted, got a little bit less than they wanted, but I think their return on Corey Coleman speaks to the type of value that he had around the league. They didn't even get back a seventh-round pick in this upcoming year's draft. They did it in the 2020 draft. And I think the reason that the value was so low is that they agreed to take on $3.5 million of guaranteed salary that was still left in Corey Coleman's deal. He doesn't go there with a great reputation from his days in Cleveland, but the Buffalo Bills are hoping that a restart, refreshed, new change of scenery will help him reach some of that potential that made him that first-round pick. The other interesting part of this, of course, is that The Browns picked him in the draft in which they had the second overall pick that they traded away to the Philadelphia Eagles so the Eagles could go get Carson Wentz. And the people that made that deal, Harry Roseman, Doug Peterson, they get five-year matching extensions on the same day that Corey Coleman is traded to Buffalo. And the two events are not altogether entirely not unlinked. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because you're looking at the fact that Corey Coleman really this year was trying to prove himself after two injury-filled seasons and not really getting the opportunity to do that. I talked to Jarvis Landry last night, and he said it is unfortunate. Matter of fact, I saw the both of them working out at USC uh, when I was in California, and I saw that Corey was trying to put the effort in, and that's what Jarvis mentioned last night. You know, But at the same time, uh, you know, he, do- he does feel bad for him. I know he's trying to contact him last night, and Corey Coleman now will have to see how everything works out with this new team if everything you know, gets smooth and he shows up. Um, and I think the other thing that's uh, interesting with that is I was talking to a coach last night and I said, you know, what, what do you think about the fact that he's traded? And, and his thoughts were, well, for a guy that had that type of speed, uh, we were not seeing the separation that we needed to see on a mm. consistent basis. That was the comment from the coach. But I do know that Corey has been working hard. I've seen him working hard in person. It's unfortunate that it's uh, worked out this way. And this is strictly professional, not so much something personal that may have happened within the locker room, something along those I, lines. I don't, I, I, the sense I've gotten is that he was not the most popular guy there, that I think that this is a chemistry talent issue together. They want to move on from him. Keep this in mind. That litany of, uh, of horrors that you uh, pointed out mm-hmm. was done by people who were no longer Correct. with the Browns. Uh, exactly. John Dorsey is a professional. The people who preceded him were not. And they're responsible for the dumpster fire that is the Browns. 
John Dorsey now is a professional. He's coming in. He knows how to build teams. He knows how to win. He knows the game of football. He's not an amateur coming in from the outside. Uh, he's not a contract negotiator. He's a football man. Uh, and as a result, he's making football moves. This is a guy who's just a guy. And if you listen carefully to what uh, Brandon had to say, which was great, he did a ter- terrific job of not offending the player and saying, hey, we got a need at the position. We'll take anybody. We'll give you a seven for him. We'll take the 3.5. Good. Let's go. Maybe he makes the team. Maybe he doesn't. He's just a guy at this point in time. The good news for Browns fans is there's now a professional in charge of the future of the Browns. Mm-hmm. How much added pressure then on a guy like Josh Gordon, who is still absent from camp, to be a part of this thing quickly? I don't think there's any added pressure on Josh Gordon. They recognize he's in a different category, and he has to get the help he needs this summer before he's ready to return. Regardless of what happens to Corey Coleman or Jarvis Landry or Antonio Callaway or any other wide receiver on that roster, Josh Gordon will come back when he's ready to come back. They will make the moves that they have to, irregardless of Josh Gordon. And so they'll wait for him. And I also think Josh Gordon, as much as they love him, and is that's a transcendent talent as well, He's not somebody that they can count on. And if and when he does come back, that's a bonus that he could be a huge bonus. But somebody that's had all the issues that he's had, it's hard to depend and rely on somebody As like that. As lawyers say, can we, can we uh, stipulate that the word transcendent will not be used unless, <laughs> unless it's applied to Tom Brady or someone like that? I heard they just put it in bold, actually, Bill. <laughs> so, so do you think that this is a move for them to maybe bring in somebody like a Des Bryant, somebody else on their way into Cleveland? What do, you, what do we think overall? Well, I was just talking uh, to a source before we came on the air, and specifically the text said that the move was not done to clear uh, room for Des Bryant, although I have talked to players last night who actually would be excited for him to contribute even in the wake of what's happened with Corey Coleman. And I also talked to another coach who said, per their own research, uh, none of the feedback that they have gotten is that uh, Des Bryant is not workable as far as a football player and on the field. So that coach made um, a point to underline that. But the text I just received five minutes ago was that it was not done to specifically clear room for him. Adams uh, made a, a great statement here just a minute ago. You can talk about speed. And that's important for a wide receiver. But the two most important things for a wide receiver in the National Football League are separation quickness and ability and hands. And in Dez's case, the separation is down markedly. The hands are down markedly from what they were. They're still good, but they're down markedly from what they were. And in Corey Coleman's case, as, as Adam pointed out, the separation was not there. The clock speed is fine. That's the qualifier. But you've got to have all the rest. And in those two particular cases, some of that is lacking. And you know what's interesting? I think he was the Bolitnikoff Award winner when he came out. I remember because uh, I covered, the, I think I've covered the Browns for the draft for the last three years. And at the press conference, they pointed out that he had 20 touchdowns, a Bolitnikoff winner, speed, 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 and all this other stuff. And then, you know, three years later, look at what Adam is reporting. And there were front offices at the time. We could do this for every draft, though. Right. That didn't even feel he was the best receiver in the draft. Mm. They felt that there were other wide receivers that had more upside, more talent. And the Browns traded back from number two to number 15 and took Corey Coleman with the 15th overall pick. And the Eagles got, sorry, Bill, a transcendent talent. (laughs) I'll accept that. He hasn't done it quite long enough. But I won't won't gong you on that. What what do you think of the trade from a team, from Buffalo's perspective, if you will? Do you like it? They got a guy. They got a guy for nothing. They they, they gave a bag of footballs, and they got a guy who can compete for a spot on their team. The Super Bowl champs announced today that 
Vice President of Football Operations Howie Roseman and head coach Doug Peterson have their contracts extended through 2022. The Super Bowl title is the ultimate validation, but in two seasons under Peterson and Roseman, the Eagles are 20 and 12 and ranked in the top five in scoring and points allowed. And the only team to outscore its opponents by more over that span is the Patriots. So, Adam, how important is it for the Eagles to get Peterson and Roseman specifically on both five-year matching contracts? Well, Jack, you see this all the time on teams throughout the league when there's a GM that hires a head coach or a head coach who's in place when a GM is hired. Oftentimes, teams try to match up the length of these contracts so the two men can be linked together. There's no question about who has more power or less power, and they work together moving forward. Additionally... These two men happened to join together to bring Philadelphia its first-ever Super Bowl title with the team president, Don Smolensky, who also was given another five-year extension through the year 2022. And it allows everybody to work in peace, to be on the same page, to operate efficiently, smoothly, productively, and to go forward. And again, as we mentioned before, these extensions are announced last night. They were done weeks ago, and they were in the draw of Jeffrey Lurie. It's just a question of when the Eagles wanted to officially say it. Well, they said it last night. And it was ironic that they said it on the night that the Browns traded Corey Coleman, the player that they pick with the Eagles pick, where the Eagles moved up in the draft to go get Carson Wentz. So we'll, we'll get right into it. We're going straight to Monday. We're going right into overreaction Monday, one of the great games of all time. I'll read the statement. They will say if it is an overreaction or not. Statement number one, the Eagles will win at least one more Super Bowl in the next five years. Adam, overreaction or not? Not an overreaction. I think you've got a team here that with Carson Wentz at quarterback – no disrespect to Nick Foles, is going to be in play for a Super Bowl every year. Now, Jack, it doesn't mean that they will win one, but they will have a chance to win one every year for the next five years, I would bet, as long as Carson Wentz is healthy. They have the talent base. I know that the Philadelphia Eagles fans, I'm sure, would love to hear that. And there are things that you need along the way to win the Super Bowl, some breaks, health, momentum, confidence, all those things. But they'll have a chance every one of those years to get another one, and at some point there's a chance they will. And now they also have the template. I think it's not an overreaction. They have a template for what works. You know what I mean? And you have a mindset, winning ways. You have the confidence also infused with the fact that, as Adam says, you have the right you know, quarterback and that backup quarterback to get you there, obviously giving you a chance. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I was at a clinic that the NFL puts on for up-and-coming young coaches, trying to develop them as a potential uh, coordinator and head coaching candidates. And uh, Doug spoke. And he absolutely blew me away. Man, is he dynamic. He knows the game. I can see why players follow him. He was a quarterback, so it shouldn't be surprising. But he wasn't a guy that was terribly well-known outside the people that he worked with. And he was magnificent. And Howie has a terrific analytical streak, but he's also got solid football grounding. So when you put the two things together... And the fact that they're both disciples of Andy Reid, so they both come from the same philosophical background. And, and you got Don Smolinski, who, by the way, is a terrific team president. Mm-hmm. You got that's the, that's the winning formula. Yep. And, oh, by the way, when Chip Kelly was there, Howie was put into a different side of the building and was an afterthought and came back once Chip was let go and returned to become a great GM and do the job he has. And you have Doug Peterson who I don't believe was the first choice when they hired head coaches. The Eagles went through a variety of candidates and in the end ultimately wound up settling on Doug Peterson, which was the best thing that could have happened to them because you see how great he's been. So Howie kind of came back. Doug wasn't the first choice. And these two men that weren't at the top of their list worked out extremely well. Doug may not have been the media's first choice. 
But I can tell you from firsthand knowledge that when he interviewed, he, he impressed them the he very did. same way he impressed me and others in the coaching clinic. He was the first choice from the time mm. he, he, he interviewed. Yeah. That's, that's clear. I was going to say, it just goes to show you don't always have to be the first horse out the stable. It's what horse finishes last. And clearly both of those uh, guys in Peterson and, and Howie Roseman have done that with their deals now. How much more are you a believer in teams that still have a quarterback under a rookie contract? Should you really bet on teams like that? Because you're still going to have wins for, what, three, four more years before you have to negotiate? I think it's certainly helpful. Yep. Um, but it's not absolutely dispositive. I mean, Brady's not under a rookie contract. Yep. You, you can, there are a lot of different ways to do it. If you have him under the rookie contract and you have a GM that's very good about being able to put the money in other places and working with the coaching staff to fill needs, it's, it's certainly helpful. But that guy also has to be able to play. Uh, witness what happened in Indianapolis. They had Andrew for five years under a rookie contract and went from here to there. So it's about competence in the front office as well as having that rookie contract. But, Bill, in this sport where the margin of error is so small and the league wants every team to be 8-8 eight and eight, and there's really not a tremendous difference, if the biggest advantage a team can get in this sport is hitting on a rookie quarterback early that comes on to play. Look at what the Seattle Seahawks did with Russell Wilson. They were able to allocate all his dollars to the defense side of football and elsewhere. And so when you have a rookie quarterback or a quarterback under his rookie contract in place, it doesn't mean that you're going to win a Super Bowl, but it does mean that you have a big-time advantage mm-hmm. if that rookie quarterback in play. I don't know. I, I guess where I quibble with you is I don't think it's a big-time advantage. I mean, we had Peyton Manning as the top player in the league at his position for all the years he played and, and still ended up going – to eight straight playoffs and two Super Bowls. So there's, there's different ways to, yeah, to skin the cat. Yeah, there you that's go. Fair. That's fair. Geico presents Monster Counseling. Dracula, tell me how you're feeling. No one understands how lonely it is. No one will even let me into their house. I knock and I knock, but they ignore me. Uh-huh. What else? I look in the mirror and <laughs> I don't even see myself anymore. If you don't see yourself clearly, can you really expect others to? I'm having a breakthrough. It's not easy to be a vampire. But with GEICO, it's super easy to switch and save hundreds on your car insurance. So the preseason kicked off at the Hall of Fame game Thursday. We've got a full slate this week, meaning our first look at the number one overall pick, Baker Mayfield, Thursday against the Giants. We'll get back to that. The Bills also host the Panthers on Thursday, meaning the preseason debut of seventh overall pick, Josh Allen. It also pits Sean McDermott against his former team. And Sam Darnold ended his holdout last week. So we'll see how up to speed the rookie is making his preseason debut Friday as the Jets host the Falcons and the Cardinals. They'll host the Chargers on Saturday, a chance for the 10th overall pick, Josh Rosen, to shine as he'll compete with Sam Bradford for that starting job. Uh, back to Thursday's game we'll go. Giants and the Brown features two top picks. You have Baker, you have Saquon Barkley. So we'll head to Cleveland right now where our Diana, Diana Rossini is visiting the Browns. Diana, you had an overall number one pick at quarterback that's led a team uh, in college that was awesome. Now you have a team, the other guy that's led the team to the playoffs. What are you hearing right now about where the quarterback competition stands in Cleveland? Hi, Jack. Uh, at this point, the competition for the starting job at quarterback, it's over. It's Tyrod Taylor's job. In fact, Hugh Jackson is pretty much sick of having to answer questions from the media almost every single day about the progress of Baker Mayfield at this point because the narrative going to camp was that Baker could perhaps win this job and 
That is not the case. Tyrod Taylor has been able to do things out on the field that have impressed both the coaches and, of course, the players out on the field. I had a chance to talk to Jarvis Landry for a few minutes about both quarterbacks. Take a listen. Honestly, we're blessed to have him. You know, I'm blessed to be in a position to be around him and see his worth ethic, um, learn from him, you know, and, you know, hopefully that leads to a lot of touchdowns, a lot of wins. You know you have that backup right now in Baker Mayfield. What have you seen from him that you like? Just, you know, you know, there's no drop-off. You know, he comes in from, uh, you know, being behind Tyrod, and he continues to make plays. He continues to make plays down the field with his legs, you know, and it's something that it makes you more excited, as much more excited, you know, for the future here as well. Josh Gordon, not here. Uh, have you spoken to him, and w- what's the update here? Uh, I mean, there's no true true update. You know, obviously, you know, we, we wish his health um, above all, you know, and, um, we're just in full support of him. You know, whenever he's coming back, or you know, we're going to welcome him back. And, you know, but we're ready to have him. It's certainly one of the biggest mysteries around the Cleveland Browns camp. Where is Josh Gordon? No matter if you ask a coach or a player, no one seems to want to give out any answers about that. But in terms of a game this Thursday night against the Giants. Here is the Browns' plan. The first-team offense with Tyrod Taylor leading the way. They'll take about one or two series out there. And then, guys, it's going to be the Baker Mayfield show. I'm told he's expected to play in about two quarters with the second-team offense out there. So we'll see how the rookie adjusts to the life of uh, the NFL. And hopefully it is a bit cooler up in New York because it is sweltering here at Camp in Cleveland. Well, stay cool. The second quarterback in the draft was Sam Darnold of the Jets. You were there Saturday night. What did Todd Bowles tell you about his progress so far? Uh, Jack, it was pretty clear, and that is he cannot believe he is seeing what he's seeing from Sam Darnold just as a rookie because on Saturday that was just the fourth practice for Sam Darnold. Remember, he missed those first three days of practice because of the contract situation, but here were some takeaways from Todd Bowles mobility. He was so impressed with how Sam Darnold was able to pass on the run. His overall awareness. I even had a chance to talk to Josh McCown and he spoke specifically about the poise Sam Darnold has in the in the huddle. And really the story coming out of New York at this point is Sam Darnold is way ahead of schedule in terms of his understanding of this Jets offense at this point. The idea that perhaps he could start week one while I asked Todd Bowles that specifically. And, Jack, he didn't give me an answer. Nothing. Nothing. Not even for Diana Rossini. Diana, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. So the Jets have McCown. They have Bridgewater. And then a third overall pick, Sam Darnold. Adam, what are the chances in your brain right now that Darnold is the guy week one? We're still over the weekend. There's a quote-unquote very fair chance that Darnold will win the starting job, which doesn't mean he does. But what it does mean is that he's going to go into the preseason with a chance to win that starting job, depending on how he plays. And isn't that what the preseason is for? They are open-minded to it. They know they have Josh McCown, who's a dependable veteran. They know they have Teddy Bridgewater, another dependable veteran. But they also know that Sam Donald, as Diana said, is ahead of schedule, has picked up this offense, has impressed them. They think he's a special quarterback. Now, again, a lot of teams think their rookies are special (laughs) at this time of the year. The lights go on. They're not as special anymore. But... Sam Darnold's going to have the opportunity this summer in these four games to shine. And if he plays the way that the Jets think he's going to, then I think he's going to win that starting job. But he's got to go do that over the course of the preseason and show that he can stand up to that challenge. 
I think there's a reason why they drafted him where they drafted him. But, again, you know, the evaluation when you're having a green and white scrimmage is certainly different from when Von Miller and Khalil Mack and some people of those sports are coming at you. So I think the real assessment does come during the regular season, as Adam said, when the lights come on. That being said, we heard all the attributes and the superlatives that were associated with Sam Darnold during the draft process and the combine or what have you. And so far he's shown to live up at least to that benchmark. Now, what's what's the best pl- best way to handle preseason game number one for a rookie quarterback? What's the best strategy there? Well, the best strategy is to give him an opportunity to do well, uh, typically with the second team. So he's playing against second team defenses. Secondly, give him a, a very uh, watered down game plan so he's not burdened with a lot of stuff. And you hope that he's able to get the team out of the huddle, up to the line of scrimmage, get the ball snapped uh, efficiently and easily, uh, do a rudimentary job of reading defenses. He won't do a good job, that's for sure. Do a rudimentary job of reading defenses and remain poised. So if you see that, number one, in the immortal words of Bill Parcells, don't send him to Canton yet, Mm -hmm. but put a check mark in the column of good, the arrow's up. And if you see... Helter-skelter, if you see careless, crazy interceptions, if you see uh, panic in the, in the face of the rush, if you see him watching the rush, then worry a little bit. But, Bill, oftentimes, and correct if I'm wrong, you could see this right away in the preseason. I remember when Russell Wilson came on, the Seahawks had signed Matt Flynn. Most people thought the veteran would be the starter. They could bring along Russell Wilson slowly. And then the preseason game started, and Russell Wilson lit it up. And basically played exceptionally well to the point where the team could not keep him on the bench. And I would imagine it'll be something similar. Either Sam Darnold will shine and he'll show that he's worthy of being the starter or he'll show that he's not ready yet and needs more time on the bench to get ready and McCown and Bridgewater should well, play. Well, you can have a middle ground, although I doubt it with McCown and Bridgewater there. You can say, as we did with Peyton in, in Indianapolis, look, we're going to put him in there. He's played four years of college football. We're going to put him in there. It's going to look ugly at times, but he'll benefit by the experience. And he had Marshall Falk with him. He had a great left tackle with him. It, there, there were good people around him. Marvin Harrison was there. So bottom line, if you put him in there and, he's, and, he, and he can keep his head above water, that's fine. The most important thing is being able to protect him. But it won't be pretty. Peyton set a record for interceptions in his rookie year. You know, it happens to the best of them, and he's among the best of all time. So it's not going to be pretty if the rookie plays, but you make the decision based on is he the best guy, and if we give him this experience, is, he, is our franchise going to benefit from it in the long run? And it's definitely if he's the best guy, but it's interesting when you're also trying to consider the psychological impact because I wonder, you know, what you consider like, you know, when Nathan Peterman went in there for the Bills and then comes in there and obviously Nathan Peterman, Sam Down, we're talking about two different, you know, examples, but just from the standpoint of coming in there, going against a tough defense against the Chargers, having five interceptions, what does that do psychologically when you're trying to come back in, let alone just the risk of injury? I never really worried about psychology with quarterbacks because if they're that fragile... You shouldn't have taken him in the first place. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not gilding the lily here. I, I do worry about injury. I remember Jim Plunkett with the, with the Patriots. They couldn't protect him, and he got beaten to a pulp. And thank God he ended up with the Raiders where they could protect him and his skill set fit with the Raiders, and he went on to have the career that everybody expected of him. So I, I really worry about 
that yeah, more so. Injuries, yeah. And Bill, it's not just injuries of being hit. It's being broken down physically and I think mentally. You look at a quarterback like David Carr in Houston got hit so often that he was not the same quarterback. Tim Couch in Cleveland got hit so often he was not the same quarterback. And it wasn't just injuries. It was what it did to them mentally standing in the pocket. Well, but it, it's, it's like it's, it's a, a, a Bill Walsh used to use boxing examples. He was correct. That's a fighter who's been punched out. He can't get his hands up anymore. The, the blows are too much. He can't think clearly anymore. You don't want that guy ever to be punched out. That's what you want to guard against. How about this? At least one rookie quarterback has started the season opener in 10 straight seasons. So we are going to see somebody. No, and nobody's got a better chance than Darnold pre-injury. Now, injuries could change things, but Darnold going to the preseason has the best chance of any rookie quarterback this summer. So we heard a lot of great speeches on Saturday. What stood out to you guys about what we heard? Just basically how uh, emotional and passionate uh, Brian Dawkins, Randy Moss, and obviously Ray Lewis were. I think it's a great reminder of the fact that, you know, when athletes are on the field, everything that they're carrying doesn't just have to do with the game. They also carry things that have to do with their lives outside of the sidelines. And for Brian Dawkins to talk about his battle with at one point wanting to take his life, uh, thinking that he wasn't going to be able to continue on this earth, that message transcends sports and can touch a lot of people, you know, who actually view and engage in the sports that they play. So I thought that that was very powerful. And also how much their uh, speeches were connected to speaking about their religious and spiritual beliefs and how much that propelled them through their careers. Good. To our Hall of Famer, Bill Poley, when you were sitting on that stage, what were some of your favorite moments? Well, I, you know, the, everybody was great. Uh, and, and as JoJo said, the, the personal story is what that is about, at least part of what that's about. The other part of it is that you thank everyone who helped you along the way. And there, isn't, there aren't enough days uh, for most people to do that. It's very hard to, to do. Uh, but for me, two that stood out, Randy because of the way he delivered it, how, uh, how well organized it was, how clear the message was. I thought that was really good. And Jerry Kramer was special to me because I was a very young coach, a player and a very young, lousy player and a very young coach uh, trying to make it in this game with no horizons beyond being a head coach maybe at the Division three level, somehow thinking that pro football wasn't for, for people like myself but wanting badly to be there and seeing and and hearing him and watching that team, knowing that Lombardi came from New York as I did, uh, even though I was a Giant fan, changed my view. It it gave me a a wider view. And and when he said during his speech, uh, if you can, you can, if you will, uh, that resonated. And there's a luncheon called the Nietzsche Luncheon, which takes place on Friday in which only Hall of Famers are in the room, no one else. Mm. And so I got a chance to, to thank him and tell him how much that meant to me and, and what, a, what a, a, a boost it gave me in thinking of where possibly with a lot of luck my career would go. Mm. I never thought it would end in Canton, obviously, uh, and, and he deserved it long ago. But uh, uh, bottom line, it's that inspirational message. That's what the Hall is about, telling other people in the business and out of it, that if, if, you, if you can, you will, you know, and if you will, you can. Mm-hmm. And you bring up that luncheon on Friday, the Ray Nischke luncheon at the Brookwood Country Club. And for years, 
Ray Nischke was the featured speaker where they roast the incoming class of Hall of Famers. And the only people allowed in the room are, at that point in time, the people who are in the Hall of Fame or the people at one point who voted on it, which they no longer allowed no longer. to happen. Right. But I was in that luncheon, and when Nischke used to do it, it was very emotional. I can see Ray Lewis being the leader of that room in years to come with the passion that he brings and the way he preaches. He was the first guy here not to stand at the lectern, to wander around with the wireless mic on, and to speak to the audience, very <laughs> 2018. And I think in time that he will be that featured speaker in that room. Hard to project in a room of such dominant, strong personalities and outspoken men, but I could see Ray Lewis leading well, that Ray Nischke luncheon for years to come It's interesting. There are no featured speakers. Anybody who wants to speak can. And you would be amazed absolutely amazed at the eloquence yeah. Oh, yeah. in that room. But Nitschke was the ringleader, and then Deacon Jones was for a while. Deacon started it, actually, and then Nitschke picked it up, and, and, uh, and it's gone on, and it's named in his honor. It's now held in the hall in, in, the, uh, oh. in, a, in a, uh, a large meeting room inside the hall. I and mean, I just wanted to get back to the point that uh, Terrell Owens was trying to make at his independent event at the University of Tennessee Chattanooga, which he said he wanted to clarify that he was doing it because he feels like the core values of the uh, you know members that you know put forth the inductees is not you know consistent. And I was just curious, even Bill, you know what you feel about that, particularly one when you have uh, members in the hall, some who have you know had transgressions off the field that are there, some who took, you know, years to get in. Uh, for Ter- Terrell Owens, it was three. You know, people like Chris Carter, Andre Reid, and, 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 and uh, Brown took, uh, took longer than that. Longer right, than took 40. longer than that. But is there a point there about there needing to be consistency just on meritocracy since sports mm. at its core is about a meritocracy? Mm. Well, there's a lot of parts to this. The first is that the selection process is governed by the board of directors of the hall. The, the general consensus in talking to my fellow members, my fellow Gold Jackets, uh, is that it was a shame that he was not there. Because no, at no other time in your life will you ever get the opportunity to say your piece the way everybody did, to explain to the world why you did what you did. At no other time will you receive the adulation and the love and the accolades that you do, at no other time will you have the opportunity to share it with your family in that kind of setting. Imagine a family sitting there among 22,000 people and seeing their member up there being honored with, with only 317 or so people in the history of the game. Imagine how the mamas feel. Imagine how the father, Mr. Brazil, he was, if Mr. Brazil could have, he didn't need feet to walk on the stage. He was flying. It's heartwarming to see that. And he missed all of that. And most of all, he missed his classmates. You are close with your classmates. You spend four days, five days actually with them Mm -hmm. in, in really close quarters. He missed all of that. And it's a shame. But is the criteria inconsistent? Is the criteria... I can't answer that. I can't answer is, is that. It, I mean, that's room. the point I'm he not was trying to make. I'm just like, I, I got it. But, but, okay. Yes, it, it is. It as is a matter of fact, one of the... the, the uh, of, of all of the uh, uh, players and, 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 excuse me, gold jackets that I spoke to, the general consensus was this. Whatever he did, he did. Mm-hmm. And somebody's going to have to deal with that down the road as an issue. Generic issue, not not related to him, 
But the minute he, I'm quoting someone now, I shouldn't probably because it's a quiet, it shouldn't be quoted, but it's, it's, it's been out there, so I'll, I'll do it. The minute he decides to come back in here, he's one of us, and we welcome him with well, open arms. Well, look at this. Randy Moss called him after the ceremony to let him know that they missed him there mm-hmm. and that he wanted him to be there and that they have love for him. Ray Lewis said the exact same thing. So even though he wasn't there, he was there in spirit. They were thinking of him. They connected to him. And you heard Ray's message of love that night. That was the love that he extended to Terrell Owens. He did what he wanted to do that day. The Hall of Fame inductees did what they did that day. Two different ideas. They're always part of the same class. Just carried about it with different methods and different ideas. And I speak for all of us. Congratulations to our teammate, Randy Moss, and what a heck of a speech he gave uh, up there on that stage. All right, it is press coverage. It is Tweet 30. I refuse to talk over that, so I'll get it to Adam. Adam, what's going on? Well, the Atlanta Falcons have been busy signing players to extensions this offseason, Jack, and they've done it again. Reaching an extension with safety, Ricardo Allen. Three years, $19.5 million. The ink is getting dry on this one right now, but already they've signed Matt Ryan to a lengthy extension this offseason. They've signed Jake Matthews to a lengthy extension this offseason. And Ricardo Allen, who was headed into the last year of his deal, now gets a three-year, $19.5 million extension, becoming the latest Falcon to land a new big deal. The Colts will face the Seahawks in their preseason opener on Thursday night, and quarterback Andrew Luck is expected to play about a quarter they're saying it'll be his first time throwing a ball in any game since January 1st of 2017. Luck tells Peter King of NBC Sports, nervous? I'll be very nervous. Here's Luck talking to our Sal Palantonio. There were there was a time, time or two where I where I thought I would not play football again, and I didn't think it was worth worth playing again. Uh, and I'm I'm so glad to have worked worked through that. I've like I said, I've got a, I've received a lot of help, you know, teammates, friends, family, uh, fresh love, and, and also talking to some of my contemporaries and about things that they've gone through and, and them sharing and opening up uh, you know, about themselves was, was also very helpful. I never thought I'd have this much fun playing football again. I really didn't. I remember walking out to the first practice of training camp and having butterflies like it was a football game, like it was, you know, like it was an opening game or a playoff game. Uh, and I, I had to take a moment and, and like calm down a little bit. Thought, man, that's cool. You get to feel that again, Andrew. You get to feel those butterflies. Uh, and so it's it's like a new lease on my football life. I'm loving it. So there you go. A new lease on life. We'll have more from Sal's conversation with Luck later this month. We'll get this to Bill. What are, what are some important things to look for when you see Luck back on the field for the first time? Well, for one thing, that uh, interview gives you some insight into what an athlete goes through when recovering from injury. Athletes make their living with their bodies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and they're just like all the rest of us. They have the same insecurities and the same worries, but it's exacerbated by the fact that you may not be able to do it again. So that, that was very revealing. Secondly, uh, what you want to do is, is see, uh, like a pitcher coming off Tommy John surgery, that he comes out of it whole and healthy. If he does, it'll be a success. Who cares whether he throws 17 incompletions or five interceptions? It doesn't matter so long as that shoulder holds up and everything's fine. How important is this preseason-wise? I mean, you got to believe they're going to get him at least some reps. What, what, how do you think they play the preseason as a whole? Frank Reich has, has said that he's going to give him uh, plenty of reps. Mm-hmm. He's going to get a quarter probably tonight. He'll probably get a half or maybe a little, a little more than a, than a quarter and a half Next week, the third game, he'll, he'll probably go into the third quarter. And they may even give him some time if they feel he needs it 
in the fourth preseason game, although uh, the Cincinnati opener is, you know, comes up against that pretty quickly. I, they'll, I think they'll probably take the fourth, play the fourth game by ear, but he'll get plenty of work up until now. And he needs it. He needs to get the rust off. We're going to set a world record on this show for Bill's wide receiver news, so we'll see if we can do it live. <laughs> Kelvin Benjamin told the Athletics' Tim Graham he should have never been drafted by the Panthers, calling his time in Carolina, Carolina a bad fit from the get-go. He said about playing with Cam Newton that he didn't put him in a position to succeed with the team. Oh, dear. Quote, if you wouldn't have put me, if you would have put me with any other quarterback, Let's be real. You know what I'm saying. Any other accurate quarterback like Rodgers or Eli Manning or Big Ben, anybody. Quarterbacks with knowledge that know how to place a ball and give you a better chance to catch the ball. It just felt like I wasn't in that position. Benjamin's coach, Sean McDermott, weighed in on the situation. (laughs) I ain't going to go back and forth with him. I'm just going to work. You feel me? That's all it is. You know what it is. Just work, baby. There's a there's a time and a place. I'm not saying specific to what comments were made. There's a time and a place for for things like that, um, uh, and this was not one of them. So we have a lot of respect for our opponents, number one, and and everyone in the league. Um, um, I've spoken um, and with Calvin and. <clears throat> that's not how uh, I want us to handle things like that. Um, so um, we'll move forward as a team, and, and I'm hoping we've already done that. All right, so I want to get to, straight to Josina because you were with Cam Newton. I saw the handshake, so I understand ah, there's a little bit. I understand what's handshake. going on Check between you two. <laughs> I know you may have. Was that Cam's reaction? How would you expect Cam to react to something like this from a former teammate? Well, I, you know, I think he went high when someone else went low, particularly when, uh, you know, there wasn't something said direct by Cam about Kelvin Benjamin in the press. And so this comment seems to just be coming out of nowhere. Also, when you look at the stats that Kelvin Benjamin accrued once he went to Buffalo, just getting 217 receiving yards and one touchdown. I know that wasn't for a full season, but that's with another quarterback that wasn't Cam. So, uh, you know, there's there's one way to have a feeling about certain things, right? But it's certainly another to put it in the public atmosphere and to disrespect someone who hasn't seemingly done that to you, especially publicly. Bill, how do you view, just when comments like this come out, former GM, Hall of Fame GM, how do you look at it? Uh, With a jaundiced eye and a clenched uh, jaw, just like Sean did. It would be a very short conversation for me, as I'm sure it was with Sean. Don't do it. Don't ever do it. Don't do it again. And uh, don't speak about any other opponent or player unless you're going to say it in a positive tone. And you don't have to be a Hall of Fame GM to recognize that it's just something not, something not smart to say something like that. Mm-hmm. Just don't do that. But when you have one, I figure you might as well ask it, yeah. right? You <laughs> Absolutely, know, you know, Jack. For good reason. So before the preseason game Thursday, the Rams and Ravens are going to link up this week for a joint practice that will be in Baltimore, Maryland, reminded us of this little tussle. Adam did a nice job putting this on the Twitter sphere. You guys remember this one? Well, hmm. the first practice began at 2 o'clock Eastern today, uh-huh. so it's been underway. And Akeem Tlaib and Michael Crabtree, once again, will be meeting up. Watch that chain today, Michael. Don't be wearing any chains on the practice <laughs> field because Akeem will snatch it right away. They've had fights before. That was round one. Here's round two again in Oakland. 
in 2017. Oh, God. Not the Tlaib goes from again. I think, he, I think he got the chain again. <laughs> this <laughs> spilled over to the sideline, cameraman down, everyone down. And so today and tomorrow, the Rams with their new cornerback, Akeem Tlaib, and the Ravens with their new wide receiver, Michael Crabtree, will be scrimmaging in Owings Mills and going up against each other before they play again on Thursday night. So we got three opportunities, three days for Tlaib and Crabtree to meet up again for round three to continue on what they've already started. Continue or hopefully not, I guess. Yeah, it better not be playing two chains during practice (laughs) to remind Akiva what's going on. on. How do you view these joint practices, Bill? I like joint practices. I detest that. There's no place for that in the National Football League. And if I had been the uh, dean of discipline, which I was in 93, I would have fined both of those guys the maximum and probably suspended them. They were suspended. There is no place in football for that. Yep. That, that, that's not football. That's not our game. And to glorify it is wrong. Press coverage this afternoon. More news on Patriots wide receivers. Mike Reese tweets that the team has informed Malcolm Mitchell that he is not a part of their 2018 plans. Here is Mike Reese for more. Danny Amendola is a Dolphin. Brandon Cooks is a Ram. And Julian Edelman will miss the first four games of the season. How the new-look Patriots receiving corps comes together with Tom Brady is one of the top stories of their training camp. I don't think you can just come in and just learn offense overnight or a month. So, I mean, it's going to take extra work. Cordero Patterson, acquired in an off-season trade with Oakland, has dazzled at times in practice with one-handed catches. He works hard. He's very athletic. um, And he, he definitely helps push the unit. So, I'm happy we got him. Eric Decker is another fresh face, practicing for the first time Saturday. He catched the ball well. I mean, I was earlier on in my career, um, you know, trying to watch different guys and how they run routes. I definitely used to watch him and I'm excited that he's here. Whether it's Patterson, Decker, or returnees like Chris Hogan, Philip Dorsett, and Kenny Britt being asked to do more, the goal remains the same, earning Tom Brady's trust. It takes time, you know, and I think, uh, you know, that's what we're working on right now. And, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. You know, we're going to have to work on this whole trust-building thing, you know, every single day that we're out here. The clock is ticking, with the regular season opener just over a month away. In Foxborough, Mike Reese, ESPN.